You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I am delighted to be joined by Kasper Rekovec, a terrorism expert who focuses his work on terrorism in Eastern and Central Europe, the extreme right, and most particularly and of particular interest for this podcast, far-right foreign fighters engaged in Ukraine. Kasper is an affiliated researcher at the Counter-Extremism Project and a Globesec Associate Fellow. And between 2016 and 2019, he led the latter's national security program and has published on a broad range of extremist and terrorism groups. Previously, he worked at the Polish Institute of International Affairs and the University of Social Sciences in Warsaw, Poland. Today's podcast will focus on far-right foreign fighters in Ukraine, which is an area which Kasper has uh, specialized in, particularly in recent years. So, Kasper, I'm really delighted to have you join the podcast today. I'm very much looking forward to our discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Lucinda. Uh, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure. So since 2014, you have been monitoring and working on the topic of foreign terrorist fighters engaged in the war in Donbass and Ukraine. And you have particularly authored a CEP report entitled Career Break or New Career, Extremist Foreign Fighters in Ukraine. So I suppose that's a good place to start. I'd love to get your thoughts and, and sort of your opinion on the context of all of this research. You know, how has this phenomenon in Ukraine evolved? How did it start? Where did it come from? I think it's a it's a fascinating journey. Uh, it's also a fascinating journey for me, not just for those fighters, because obviously um, you have to move from pretty comfortable Western places to a rather not so comfortable uh, Eastern Ukraine. And uh, it's not only that they're joining units on the Ukrainian side, by the way. This is one thing that we need to put on the table very early, because most of the people see these guys as, uh, as as individuals who joined the so-called Ukraine volunteer battalions, which came up when the war in Eastern Ukraine essentially starts, which is basically dressed up as a civil war, but in reality, it then evolves into an outright Russia versus Ukraine. Let's, let's, let's be honest. Even though Russia uses hybrid warfare means and masks its, its presence there, that's the case. So you have volunteer battalions on one hand. Ukrainian army is, well, let's just say unreliable in 2014, underfunded, led by individuals who have both Russian and Ukrainian citizenship. So you can imagine how well this army was actually led when it was facing, facing a basically a Russian threat. So, you know, that's just to put it on the table again. And on the other hand, you have the so-called separatist militias in eastern Ukraine, in Donetsk and Luhansk, which basically seem to be open to almost anyone who is able to make the trek First to Rostov, which is in Western Russia, quite close to Ukrainian border, and then somehow 
is able to talk his way, it's usually a he, apologies for that, uh, to jump across the border into, into Donetsk or Luhansk. So essentially, it's a kind of a free-for-all. And lots of interesting characters, lots of people who are restless, who don't feel at home in the West, or not only the West, but essentially in Europe, we could say, they think this is an option for them. And, you know, at the same time, I'm one of the very many researchers who are looking at the foreign fighters who mostly traveled to Syria and Iraq on the jihadist or not so jihadist sides of the war. And suddenly I see something very close at home because I'm based in Warsaw at the time. And, you know, I basically saw a report on Russia today with the French fighters in the summer of 2014 when they speak into the camera, you know, Western, comfortable Western Europeans former soldiers, paratroopers, actually, of the French army, who speak into the camera and they say, you know, I've come here to support the local population in their struggle against the Kiev. Kiev is the capital city of Ukraine, Kiev Junta. And I'm here to protect the civilians and I'm here to fight on the side of Russia. You know, you can imagine, and I'm sitting in Warsaw, and I'm, you know, the sound of me falling off my chair when I see this first. And then it kind of, you know, I get involved in this. I'm trying to, I'm trying to gather as, as much, as mo, you know, as much info as I can. And I suddenly realized that these guys are also foreign fighters. They might not be foreign terrorist fighters, or not yet, but they're certainly foreign fighters. You know, this is just another conflict, which produces such individuals. And you know, the rest is history. And you know, seven years later, we're having this conversation. So it's been quite a while, I would say. That's fascinating. And I think, you know, you probably would not be alone in falling off your chair when you saw that Russia Today report, because most people thinking of foreign fighters are thinking of Syria and Iraq and the sort of uh, jihadi cause, as opposed to something that little bit closer to home in the context of Europe and uh, of the West. So for many, I think it would have been a shock back in 2014, and for many today, probably, it's also a shock. What sort of numbers are we talking about, Casper? I think, you know, there is a one number that goes around the internet, and I'm guilty, because I'm, I'm, I was the one, you know, who, who kind of co-produced it. And it's a, it's a very sexy number, because you see, you know, 17,000 foreign fighters joined the war in Ukraine, and you're saying, you know, you could be saying, wow, that's almost as many as, as the ones in Syria. Well, it is true. But massive majority of these individuals are Russians who come in, whom if you do not speak the language, uh, you might be thinking that they're locals, because the locals in Donetsk or Luhansk, they do speak Russian as their first language usually. Uh, but if you do speak a bit, and if you ask the locals, they will tell you that these guys have different accents, and they, for example, don't know the price of cigarettes <laughs> in Donetsk, which is always an indication. So around 15,000 of the 17,000, you've got the Russians. And funnily enough, they joined the separatist militias, and I say that in, in inverted commas, but quite a few also joined the Ukrainian side. And we can talk about that later as, you know, these are basically Russian extreme right-wingers who are escaping Vladimir Putin's regime and are saying that it's anything that fights this regime, and in this case it's Ukraine, we're going to join it. Because the regime in Moscow oppresses us, therefore... You know, the enemy of our enemy is our friend. So that's one thing. So you've got 15,000 Russians. On top of that, you've got around 2,000 people from all sorts of places who joined the conflict. Now, half of it are former Soviet Union citizens. So Belarus, Georgia, places like that. So quite a few, you know, probably, you know, I wouldn't classify them as Westerners. But the reminder of around, you know, 1,000 or a bit less 
is actually people from countries to the west of Ukraine. Now, I say it to the west of Ukraine because there's a bunch of, you know, Serbs. They probably wouldn't classify themselves as Westerners, but geographically, they're definitely to the west of Ukraine. There's quite a few Croats who obviously, when they hear that Serbs are deploying, they're deploying themselves and vice versa. This is a kind of like a repetition of the conflict from the 90s. You've got a pretty influential contingent from France on the separatist side. Yet at the same time, you have an influential contingent from Sweden on the Ukrainian side. So these kind of, you know, it depends on how your network nationally falls, where it falls on the chess game, Russia versus Ukraine. And sometimes these choices are, are, you know, really, really weird, to say the least, or bizarre. But you basically have people moving from almost any place. I know there's a lot of, uh, you would notice there's a lot of attention towards the Americans who joined. And, you know, there is a kind of almost like a media obsession to say that, Almost anybody who went there was Atom Waffen Division guy from the United States. Not really, no, very, 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 very few. But these are the ones whose cases are the most, uh, you know, the most in the media. Let's put it this way. But there are many, many, many others. Fascinating. So, I mean, what a what an array of of, um, of individuals traveling to Ukraine. Take the Russian foreign fighters, and I know that for some that's even in itself controversial, but. I think most people who perhaps don't have the level of knowledge that you do would assume that uh, most of those Russians entering the conflict would be on the separatist side. So from your research, what's the sort of breakdown or is it 50-50 or because it's it's really fascinating to think that these domestic issues in Russia are being played out in this theater and that many of them are, are on the Ukrainian side. I think that's probably a surprise to a lot of people. I think one estimate that I've seen and 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 that I would I could quote of these fifteen thousand, I would say the breakdown would be four fifths would be on the separatist side, one fifth on the Ukrainian. But I think it's even more uh, towards the separatists. But it is true that you had significant, by significance I mean high hundreds of mm-hmm. Russians visible outspoken, very much in the social media sphere present, because they wanted to put their case forward on the Ukrainian side. And quite a few, let's be honest, they were the ones who were actually literally escaping from, you know, the wrath of justice slash injustice in Putin's Russia. So you have a kind of like an interesting uh, dynamic there that the ones from Russia who went for Syria they would almost be given a ticket and a red carpet to jump on a plane and just disappear, just go, you know. And if you die, they're fantastic. Whereas the ones who were moving to Ukraine on either side, that's a slightly, you know, that's a slightly different game. The Ukraine-bound ones, they would be re- literally escaping justice slash injustice. The ones who were bound for the separatists, that's an interesting story because many of them would then kind of anonymously say that they were given let's say, an offer which they could not refuse. So we've got these files on you for these crimes. And if you go to fight in Donetsk, all will be forgiven and forgotten. If you don't, well, here's a penal colony for you for 10, 15 years. So there's an interesting game being played internally. And I think many people forget that this this, this milieu, this scene in Russia is huge. It's massive, you know, it's it's really, you know, I remember years when it was actually tricky to get out of your uh, dormitory when you were a student in Moscow on Hitler's birthday, because essentially there were so many demonstrations and so many demonstrators, you know, uh, celebrating. And if you had a non-Slavic look, you were in trouble. Mm-hmm. And if you spoke 
in the street with a non-Russian accent, well, obviously we're in trouble as well. So that's a kind of, you know, that tells you there is a vibrancy around it, which we kind of sometimes forget. And Russia really successfully dresses, dresses itself up as an anti-fascist force. Well, you know, it's a bit more complicated than that, I would say. Oh, it certainly is. Um, if we take the report which you authored for CEP, I mean, it seems to have been a really thorough and extensive piece of work for you. How did that process work for you? And what were the sort of the key insights that you gleaned from that particular piece of research into this? I think, you know, one insight, maybe I'll start from the back close if you don't mind. I mean, the one insight that I, I gleaned was certainly that the Ukrainians are kind of sick of talking of this topic because they feel that it's the only one topic that foreigners are interested in. And they they asked me themselves on many occasions, or you're just another guy who wants to talk about the Nazis who joined the Azov Battalion slash regiment. Well, you know, undoubtedly there is some truth to it, uh, but I was always pointing out to the fact that I have a bit of a track record with this topic, so I'm not just some kind of, you know, uh, Johnny come lately, so to speak, which kind of helped. Uh, but it's it's a tough one because obviously they feel defensive about this in a sense that the next question is going to be so what's Ukraine doing with these fighters? How is it coping? What's the uh, what's the aftermath of their deployment, so to speak, to Ukraine? What what did you do? And what's the state of your far right scene? The Ukrainians are always kind of you know on the defensive from that, and I think. It's a fair assessment, but at the same time, obviously, there are things that need to be done in Ukraine vis-a-vis the far right, but by Ukraine, but, you know, the fighters themselves who deployed and then went home, that's a slightly different thing. And I'm not sure we can hold Ukraine 100% accountable for that. You know, it was chaos, early months of the war, the army was in tatters, and suddenly you have Westerners who come in and who say, I can teach you NATO standard infantry tactics. Well, yeah, sure. You know, I, I mean, if I was a Ukrainian volunteer battalion, I'd say, you know, I, I'd say yes. So that for me was one element. And it was always, you know, I always tried to to speak to the correspondents who were, let's say, on the front line. So the journalists from all sorts of places. But I was lucky in a sense that, you know, my country, Poland, was very much involved in a sense that, you know, there was lots of coverage of the conflict in the media. And I think generally we had a slightly higher standard of understanding of what was happening there, mostly because there were so many people reporting from Ukraine. And it was not only the journalists, but it was also, you know, human rights activists. It was basically humanitarian activists. It was people who, it, it, you know, you had people who were basically helping the Ukrainian government with all sorts of issues for all sorts of years. And suddenly you had lots of voices in the public arena. So I tried to reach out to these guys and from there in a kind of snowball fashion, building up the contacts on the Ukrainian Ukrainian side. And it's also expert community, but also, you know, the far right actors, you know, the actors from the units that accepted foreign fighters. But it wouldn't be complete without doing a similar process on the other side. And on the other side, it's a bit more tricky to reach out to Donetsk and Luhansk, you know, officials because they're not really keen on talking to, <laughs> to foreigners, let's put it this way. But you have plenty of fighters who are out there and who want their story to be heard. And I made the most of it. And once you get, you know, talking to one, that very person kind of pushes you on, onto his friends. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started for me. And again, working through the local the journalists who were embedded sometimes on the separatist side, who would kind of vouch for me in a sense. So I, you know, I tried, you know, going about it this way. And at today, I could say that I interviewed more than 20 fighters. I still am in touch with fighters on both sides. And I think the biggest coup in a way 
is that they're not that different from one another. They went to different sides, but they are similar guys. They have similar feelings. They have similar preferences. And you not only have the far right on, in this infamous inverted commas Azov regiment now, but you have plenty of far right guys on the separatist side, which remember, these are people's republics, Donetsk and Luhansk, and they are allegedly fighting for, you know, the reestablishment of some kind of a Soviet post-communist dream, yet they accept far right individuals to fight in their name. And this is something that probably made me fall off my chair yet again, after seeing those Frenchmen in the early days of the war. Mm. That's really interesting. So at the outset, you mentioned the, the sort of the state of the Ukrainian army and um, the chaos disorganization that existed. So did these incoming foreign fighters bring a certain degree of professionalism then to both sides? I mean, or was it more ad hoc than that? I think, you know, it was more ad hoc, but Ukrainians probably were, made better use of such individuals. So... You know, the army is one thing. The army has its own channels of communications internationally. But those volunteer battalions, which are now usually part of Ukraine, what Ukraine calls the National Guard, which is a unit, think of it as gendarmerie on steroids. (laughs) Let's let's put it this way. And it is. It really, I mean, gendarmerie that has mortars, artillery and things like that in certain certain cases. But they are under the Ministry of Interior. So before they became, became units under the Ministry of Interior, Technically, they could look for help anywhere, and they did. So in a sense, that was okay, but you know, there are huge barriers, entry barriers. You have to land in Kiev. That was easy. You had to find like a bureau, an office of a given volunteer battalion. So you needed some kind of a contact there, preferably someone who's local, who speaks English and Ukrainian and Russian. And then you needed to convince them that you are a you know, person to be trusted. And there's a famous case of an Austrian foreign fighter who comes in, lands in Kiev, and he goes to Azov, and he's Austrian-Tunisian, and his skin color didn't match, so to speak, the preferences of Azov, so they wouldn't have him. So you have cases like that. And others would. That, that, you know, that tells you that there's a market. There was a market for these guys. How they operated, you know, that's an interesting one. None of them spoke Russian or Ukrainian, so they would be put in a unit or a platoon where there would be English speakers. And as they said, usually we would be the backpack on their back because they had to carry us. They had to translate things for us. They had to help us out. But it is true that in terms of like, you know, individual skill sets, they were useful. They were helping, especially the Swedes who were coming from, you know, the reserve, uh, Swedish military reserve kind of, you know, training and stuff like that. They were helping out Azov stand up, essentially turn it around from a bunch of football hooligans towards something resembling a military unit. And that's what they did. That's what they did. Now, on the separatist side, things got a bit more complicated because, you know, you couldn't land in Donetsk, in the airport. There were no recruitment offices there. So you would get to Russia and then you try to pass into those rebel inverted commas territories. Now, people on the border, the Russian border guards, probably they didn't get the memo from Moscow that these guys should be let in. And in certain cases, they would be deporting these guys back to Moscow and then to their countries of origin. And worse, they would be arresting them. You know, I spoke to French fighters who were literally arrested in Russia. They were genuinely pro-Russian. They love, you know, Vladimir Putin. They love the Eurasian political thought. They want to fight for Moscow. And, you know, they love Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And there there they they find themselves locked up in a Russian jail twice. On the way, so these are, they're the, cultured foreign fighters. Yeah, they cultured for absolutely, and they would always stress that. And they, they, you know, they would be locked up in Donetsk on the way in, 
you know, before joining Donetsk on the Russian side, and then they would be locked up on the way out while actually going to Moscow. So that tells you that there was a degree of like, you know, what, what is happening? You know, who's calling the shots on the other side? On the Ukrainian side, there was a bit of a mess. I mean, there's there always is, and Ukrainians are great at navigating it. It's one of the, you know, features uh, of the region. But I think Ukrainians at the end made a better use of these fighters, you know, of the fact that they were war v- veterans, I would say. That's that's really interesting. It, it, it also sounds um, quite different to the level of organization, for example, from ISIS in uh, recruiting and, and uh, attracting and integrating foreign fighters. It, it sounds a lot less organized and uh, uh, slightly more chaotic. A question, I suppose, is, and it's linked to that, I mean, in terms of the process of recruitment or attracting foreign fighters, I mean, how much would both sides rely on international networks, for example, you know, be it far-right networks, different uh, international extremist organizations? Was there a a kind of a determined uh, tapping into those networks or uh, did that play a role? I think it plays a role, bigger role now, Lucinda. When these units that attracted foreigners, let's talk on the Ukrainian side first. They they attracted them again in a haphazard fashion. They would put forward the ones, the fighters who got through, right? You know, who convinced themselves of their them of their bona fides, and they would be using them in a kind of targeted campaigns. There was a Swede, an Italian, and a, and a Frenchman. And they would be tapping into the network of veterans. Let's say, you know, the Frenchman was a veteran of the of all sorts of wars, also the war in Bosnia. So they would be targeting that crowd. It's not essentially far right, but you know, if you look at the ones from France who went to fight on the Croat side in the Bosnia war, they are traditional, Catholic, kind of conservative. So you'd kind of it's not far right by name, God forbid, but it's close. Mm-hmm. But it's a completely different customer in a sense that you've got those, you know. They would probably would call them mercenaries, but I would say soldiers of fortune would probably here be better. Okay. Then the Swede and the Italian, they would be doing the ideological outreach. They were coming from political organizations back at home. And of course, they would be pontificating these organizations, you know, come and join us. You know, we are the real deal. We are part of a far right network or nationalist, as they would always say, network from back at home, from, from, from you know, at home. And now we can do it again. So that was a concerted effort on the Ukrainian side. It really does not bring them that many people. But I think it's kind of used later on when these volunteer battalions evolve into these bizarre mixtures of, on one hand, a paramilitary formation, on the other, a social movement, a charity and a business and a political organization. And their political organizations today, they do try to link up with like-minded far-right individuals around Europe. Absolutely. And one of the things that they do and they try to do is to contest the Russian dominance of the Western far right. So whenever Russia, wherever Russia is strong, yet someone will talk to these Ukrainian nationalists, they go in. They're the happiest persons, you know, persons on the planet where they can go and, you know, rough up feathers and actually, you know, make things more, a bit more difficult for the Russian ju- juggernaut who has been investing in the Western far right for quite a few years. So in Ukraine, you know, they try did not bring does not bring them that many fighters, but then they try to capitalize on it politically. And you have emissaries of these far right movements from Ukraine traveling around Europe, linking up with like-minded individuals almost in any country in Europe. Germany, France, Italy, lots of activity in Central Central Europe, in Scandinavia. Now let's move on to the separatists. You know, the separatists are saying 
you know, this is a struggle for People's Republic. The republics, you know, they, they fly the Soviet flag, which is a kind of dumbfounding for Europe's nationalists because they're saying, right, you're on the side of Vladimir Putin. We like Vladimir Putin because he's anti-gay, you know, he's traditional, he's orthodox and stuff like that. How do we square this with this Soviet flag of yours? That's a bit of an impediment. So there's a kind of like a multifaceted message. One message, actually, Lucinda, and that's another, that was another surprise for me, was a far-left message being beamed, especially towards Southern Europe and Latin America, to say, hey, this is like the Spanish Civil War. We are building up international brigades. You will be the next international brigade fighting for Donetsk and Luhansk. But in reality, you know, we're winking at you. You're actually fighting for Russia against American imperialism. And you can throw any other imperialism in there, you know, whatever you want to put there. That was one message that they were, they were putting. The other message is, of course, the far right message, the nationalist message saying, you know, go there and fight for new countries, for new people who are basically fighting for their freedom. Of course, Ukrainians would be beaming a similar message saying fight for an established, recognized country, which basically wants to control its territory. So these messages were kind of, you know, overlapping in a sense. That's why we had so much confusion especially on the Western far right, which suddenly had to turn around and say, okay, who do we go with? Who's our champion? And this is where, you know, things got really interesting when you were seeing, I wouldn't say civil war in the Western far right, but a lot of, I mean, I'll use this, this, this term from English language, argy-bargy, if I could put it this way, in the, in the Western far right, when they were basically didn't know how to play this one out, you know, how does it, where, where do we go? Who's our better friend? And Moscow had some uh, leverage and Kiev didn't have any because it couldn't pay any money. It couldn't, you know, sponsor anything. It, there were no loans from Kiev government to far-right parties in Western Europe, you know, and I won't name any party, don't worry, that got such a loan in uh, from Moscow, but that's a reality. So essentially, uh, you know, you had this competition and it, it's still going on. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um that um, both the far left and far right were able to appeal to groups and individuals with much the same message in a in a, in a funny way. Um, although I'm I don't know I don't know how potent the anti-US imperialist message ultimately was in attracting people to. I think to, to you know it it didn't do wonders, Lucinda, in terms of like there were hundreds of people, but. You know, there's this famous headline from El País in Spain. Uh, we fought together, Nazis and communists alike. And I remember speaking to these guys, you know, and I was like, but like, why? How? Isn't that the key, key issue? And I remember being told, you really focus too much on this political, tactical thing. It's all about one strategic aim. And I said, okay, so what's the strategic aim? Fighting US imperialism. And if I'm far-right Frenchman, and if I'm a far-left Spanish, I can agree. We can agree on that. And they did. You know, there's a, there was a unit, actually, on the separatist side where they worked together. Just to make matters more complicated, they worked, they worked together with Serbian veterans of the 1990s war uh, in Bosnia. And no problem. As long as you fight American imperialism, and American imperialism can be uh, Bosnian Muslims, it can be Kiev junta, as they were saying, uh, you know, any way you dress it up, and convince yourself that that's the case, that work, that works, that that kind of, you know, that sticks sticks together. Mm, interesting. And then on the other side, amongst the, the mobilization and motivation for the far right, I mean, it seems that the region, and Ukraine in particular, 
has for a long time been an attractive destination for some of this to play out. Why is it that Ukraine is so appealing or the region generally yeah. so appealing? I think I think Lucinda, you touch upon an extremely potent subject. Which I mean, I I, I try to combat it every day in my work. <laughs> I'm not going to be successful, but at least you know I can make a contribution. So there is an overwhelming feeling that countries to the east of Germany are a Shangri-La for far-right radicals. Mm-hmm. And uh, the 2015 migrant crisis and the behavior of the governments of the region seem to validate this point of view. Uh, These are homogenous societies, predominantly white, traditional, Catholic, religious, you can even say, to some extent, or at least some of them. And in these conditions, if you mix that up with images like the, you know, Independence Day march in Poland, where, you know, allegedly 60,000 nationalists marched down the streets of Warsaw, a very exaggerated headline, just to be be sure, that makes the case for a perfect, you know, Shangri-La, a place where you just land and you can live your life if you're a far-right radical. No one's going to threaten you, punish you, lock you up, censor you. You are who you, And it's cheap, right? And it's cheap. Plus, and I'm sorry to say this, but they often use this imagery themselves, the far-right radicals. Uh, the women of the region are beautiful. That's what they say. So it kind of all, all comes together in a perfect, you know, perfect paradise. Mm-hmm. Now, it's no problem if these guys actually think that. It's the problem when the mainstream media in the West actually begin to think that. And, you know, I've seen dozens and dozens of reports that say, this is the place, they're moving there. Mm-hmm. Now, if I speak to the people on the ground in places like Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, they would tell me 10, 15 years ago, yes, these places were attractive because you could come in, you wouldn't be so much noticed. And you could, for example, do a bit of paramilitary training that you wouldn't be able to do in your country with like minded colleagues in some, you know, post-Soviet barracks, abandoned for like five quid. Literally, that would be the case. But since then, this perception and reality is moving towards Ukraine. And Ukraine is sexy in this sense, because you've got these units on the Ukrainian side, like Azov, like the right sector, who fought a nationalist war. They still function. They fly the flags and the colors. They speak the right language. And again, Ukraine is allegedly homogenous, traditional, well, in this case, Orthodox, not Catholic, but still, no Muslims there, allegedly, not true, etc., uh, etc. Et and again, Ukraine is the place that validates our thinking. So this is where we're, we're going to go, and this is where we're, we're going to set up camp. Now, some people took it to real extreme, saying that Ukraine turned into this new Peshawar, you know, Pakistani city on the Afghan-Pakistani border, where all the foreign fighters on the Afghan Arabs flocked, and Ukraine is this new Peshawar, and, you know, Azov is the new Al-Qaeda. No. But it's it's an easy shortcut, you know, and Ukraine has provided lots of imagery, lots of snippets, videos to that effect that validates such thinking. I'll just give you one example as the last, last element of the answer. A vice reporter, Simon Ostrovsky, I think, he deployed with Azov, you know, on the front line. Now, if I am the PR officer of Azov, I Google Simon Ostrovsky and I check whether the guy by any chance, maybe he's Polish origin, maybe he's Ukrainian origin, maybe he's Jewish American, right? I mean, I do that. And I tell my boys, inverted commas, you behave, right? Because this might get us in hot water. Well, they don't behave, Lucinda. You know, they jokingly greet each other with zig zig instead of hi. Now, I am a reporter coming from America and I see stuff like that. I see the insignia, you know, I see the, you know, the swastikas. I see the the, the jokes, inverted commas. You know, I heard another reporter telling me that 
the OUN battalion, they allegedly, you know, the volunteers were telling Polish reporters that they had dreams of Adolf Hitler. You know, literally stuff like that. And here's a Polish journalist listening to that. And, you know, they didn't see the PR tragedy in it. I mean, we're talking 2014, but that happens in 2014. And yet here we are seven years later when Ukrainian units like that definitely moved on, but the label sticks. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think partly it's it's still there, regardless of the real issue that the far right is an issue for the Ukrainian state. You know, the Ukrainian state probably isn't doing enough to tamper down its violence, its rhetoric, and to basically go after it. And that's another thing. But, you know, the international issue around it, that's a bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. Well, that that leads me on to the, the question of Azov in particular, because I know you've, you've written specifically about this, um, because the US administration, or at least um, some members of Congress, have proposed that the Azov movement would be included in a list of foreign terrorist organizations. And you have argued against that. Maybe you could explain, because I, I guess um, some of our listeners won't be necessarily clear on who exactly Azov are, what their role is, what the relationship is to the Ukrainian state, Ministry of Interior, etc., and why the U.S. might be considering designating them in that way. Yes, so let's maybe start from the beginning. Azov is an organization that grew out of an eastern, out of an eastern Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, a Russian-speaking city predominantly, uh, of you know far-right individuals, football hooligans, uh, who had their problems with the law before the war. Let's put to put it mildly, to put it diplomatically. <laughs> then, when the war starts, there is an opening for them in a sense that those volunteer battalions are being stood up. And one of the volunteer battalions is basically a volunteer battalion of their political organization, which is called the Patriot of Ukraine. And they are the muscle. They are the youth slash paramilitary wing of that organization. And here the story gets very interesting because those volunteer battalions are quite often sponsored by Ukrainian oligarchs who want to defend their interests in the east of Ukraine against the Russian aggression. This is how they acquire political patrons. This is how they acquire money. And this is how they, throughout the next two years of the war, established themselves as one of the best volunteer battalions and one of the best units on the front line who fought bravely, and they did, for the city of Mariupol. Then this is their diploma, their certificate for saying, we used to be a bunch of, well, essentially thugs. Now we have a case for being a part of the Ukrainian military force. And they are part of this this gendarmerie that I mentioned to you, you know, the kind of under the Ministry of Interior. But that's not an issue. You know, the regiment is a fighting regiment. It doesn't accept foreigners. You cannot go in. You cannot just walk into their training camp. You know, there is no case there for any any worry with the regiment. The issue is somewhere else. This is also, as they develop militarily, if I could put it this way, they develop a political wing. And this political wing brings some of its prominent members into parliament uh, as parliamentarians. And later on, as, let's say, influential opinion makers, if I could put it this way, who still use the connections back from 2014 to the politicos and the oligarchs of 2014 to actually boost their popularity, their standing in the Ukrainian society. And they are the bedrock of the veteran lobby in Ukraine, which, as you can imagine, is an influential lobby consisting of quite a few people who fought on the front and now are saying, hey, we fought, we bled for this country. We should be given something. And Azov is the kind of, you know, central pillar, the most organized with the best graphics, with the highest numbers, with the best logos, you know, the kind of still structured as a paramilitary organization, in a sense. There is the 
you know, headquarters staff that runs the political affairs, that runs the organization. Now, the story is that this organization builds up political contacts with all sorts of players around the world, you know, in Europe, and it also tries in other places. So as I said to you, you know, Lucinda, at the beginning, as we were talking, other nationalists, you know, to build up friends, you know, contingents of friends around the world so that we can rival the Russian penetration of the far-right networks. And here comes the, you know, the, the creme de la creme is this. Azov has a truly transnational vision for the region. It says that we will form a new geopolitical bloc, Ukraine, and the like-minded countries of the region, Central Eastern Europe, that will rival Russia and Vladimir Putin, but also rival the West mm-hmm. and the EU. And the like-minded countries are the countries that they call it the intermarium, in between the seas, Baltic, Adriatic, and Black. And here we go to the Shangri-La argument, the homogenous, traditional, religious countries where people think like in Ukraine, you know, where people are just a bit more nationalistic, you know, where people are not corrupt by this political correctness. Mm-hmm. And Azov is working politically with like-minded movements in the region. And it, it kind of puts on a message of a, a really vibrant transnational movement. It's not so much. You know, but in certain cases, it talks to pretty powerful local players. They would be talking to political parties, which are established political parties in certain countries like Croatia, Estonia, Latvia. You know, these are parties that have their parliamentarians in parliament, that that have Europarliamentarians. So that gives an image of a transnational hydra. Now, the biggest issue is whether it still accepts foreigners into its ranks, especially for paramilitary training, with the worry that they come to Ukraine train in Ukraine, redeploy back home and stage terrorist attacks. This is allegedly what they had been doing. And I say allegedly at the beginning, this is the kind of, you know, albatross of the accusation around the Brenton Tarrant, the Christchurch attacker from 2019, that he allegedly trained with one such unit, not mentioning Azov, but potentially with one such volunteer unit in Ukraine. And therefore he was the first foreign fighter who then staged the terrorist attack in the West. Now, Azov says, hey, we had nothing to do with this guy. We're not training anybody really. Yes, we have fraternal relations with all sorts of people from the West, but these are not paramilitary relations. You know, and I've spoken to members of the of the movement and I've looked into the paramilitary milieu in Ukraine. And it is a vast milieu, and it is far right, but it's not internationally oriented. You know, it's not, you cannot just fly in and then, and then, you know, buy a tactical training and then, you know, a blessing from a far right organization in Ukraine who would say, go deploy and, you know, attack this or that target in the United States. They have no interest in that. You know, for them, it's harmful. And I mean, they told me, them, you know, themselves that if we were to do stuff like that, in a second, we would be on the foreign terrorist organizations list of the U.S. State Department. And we've seen what has been happening to us when the rumors were first mentioned. You know, this isn't a new story. This is something that came up in early 2020. And suddenly, you know, some of their friends were becoming jittery. Suddenly, you know, things were beginning to look a bit more difficult abroad. And that's why they're maintaining this, okay, you might not like us in Ukraine, but we're not doing these things internationally. That's why, you know, I wrote this piece for Counter Extremist Project saying, you know, designation isn't the way to go. It's not what you should be looking at. And Kiev would probably shrug it off saying, you know, there is no case. I mean, I suppose probably a discussion for another day because we could go down a complete rabbit hole here. But there's definitely a piece of work, I think, to do in looking at how the US and the European Union have reacted to the 
the crisis in Ukraine over the past number of years and uh, and what, you know, if there had been perhaps more engagement and a more support intervention, perhaps some of these questions might not be looming so large today. But, uh, but as I say, that's probably a discussion for another day. I, I suppose, and you mentioned Christchurch because, I mean, I think most people, again, uh, listening to this podcast are probably not for one moment imagine that the attack in Christchurch, New Zealand could have any connection to to Ukraine and to what has been happening there. And I suppose this is perhaps a risk. I mean, it may not be the intent um, in any way that individuals who who travel to Ukraine under whatever guise would be trained or would be in any way motivated or encouraged to, you know, at a later stage, perpetrate an atrocity like we saw in Christchurch. But I guess that's the law of unintended consequence. I mean, there is a risk that when you have this sort of, you know, melting pot of different individuals with different backgrounds, and you, I think, have really captured this very well in your report and in all of your research on this, coming from with different motivations from the far left, from the far right, you know, there's a huge risk that those foreign fighters then return to their own countries and, you know, can act as lone wolves or can maybe in small, small isolated groups carry out these types of attacks. And I don't know if you have specific thoughts or recommendations as to how that can be avoided, but it's uh, it's it's a very big question, I think. Thank you, Lucinda. I mean, it's it's a key issue because obviously uh, Christchurch was such a massive event. It kind of reignited the interest in the topic in a way. Uh, one thing, you know, which we should remember is that Tarant actually, after being in Ukraine, he spent an even longer amount of time in Russia. Yet no one was scrutinizing his potential links to the far right in Russia, which could, you know, there is a booming business in the country. Let's so let's just, you know, remember about that. So that's that's an interesting one. So there's been no link in terms of him actually training there and linking up with, with such such organizations. He was probably more there to, you know, breathe the air of the Shangri-La in Kiev. I don't know if he did, but okay. In terms of, you know, such deployments and things like that, I think. There's been some interesting cases after the war of individuals kind of, you know, gravitating towards some trouble spots. And I'll give you a few examples. So you've got some essentially foreign fighters, this time from Serbia, who in Russia, who tried to, or at least were involved in the alleged coup in Montenegro. And that's very Europe. That's a new NATO member state. And uh, well, you know, it's, it's basically on tape. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Then you have some Frenchmen who pop up in uh, amongst the Yellow Vest protesters in France in, in, in 2019. And of course, you know, it's not terrorism, it's, a, it's basically a riot. But still, you know, their, their kind of propensity to, to go into places where trouble is brewing, that's an interesting one. Then you have some of these individuals flock to private military companies. And, you know, they are in Syria, they are in Libya. In Somalia, you know, they try to set shop in uh, the Kurdistan regional, you know, uh, the KRG in northern northern Iraq. So, you know, it's basically, you know, one of the claims that I'll be making in the upcoming papers is that there is some kind of a Western foreign fighter society or even a secret society. We know it exists, but we don't know its rules. And they give each other snippets about, you know, what's brewing and where, where you can go, whom to link up with. And that cuts across the divide of the war in Ukraine. And this is where it really gets difficult and dangerous in a sense. Because, you know, I've, I've heard of examples that they would be actually writing references for one another across the divide of the Ukrainian war. There was an attempt for the Frenchmen to mobilize for the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, so Azerbaijan versus Armenia, 
but it was just too short for them to actually even deploy there. Ukraine, that was a completely different thing. It was a long, long war. It starts in spring of 2014, heats up in the summer of 2014, and there we are. Here we are seven years later. It's still going on. Nagorno-Karabakh was really short. So they will try to find another place. Now, the big question is what happens afterwards. Then probably the most illustrious thing is, you know, Nordic resistance movement, the Nordic transnational Scandinavian organization, on the back of this war and the shifts, the Ukraine-Russia shifts, it kind of shifts its position from pro-Ukrainian, if I could put it this way, towards pro-Russian. And its members go and train with a Russian paramilitary organization that fought in Donia. And then two of these members go back to Sweden, and they basically stage terrorist attacks against refugee and then left-wing targets in Sweden. Of course, Nordic resistance movement says, we didn't sanction this, fine. But yet things happen. And I think, you know, when I see photos of these guys in the aftermath of the war at different, you know, get-togethers and associations with some kind of, you know, Russian colleagues, well, you know, you have to be thinking how these guys could be operationalized in the future as troublemakers. I'm not saying terrorists, maybe, because we haven't seen, you know, an out, you know, outburst of terrorism, but as troublemakers, as influence peddlers. And in many cases, they do function like that as these kind of, you know, disinfo uh, characters with their YouTube channels and their kind of, you know, media access. And I think they, they're doing more harm through these means than through outright terrorist activity. And it's present all around Europe. You would find individuals like that who one day might be of use. And Lucinda, let's not forget, and that's the last point, they are useful tools for Russian media when you can roll them out and say, here is an influential Finnish guy. And look what he's saying. He agrees with us. You know, he speaks Russian, you know, stuff like that. And he says all those far right things. That's an example. You can actually, you know, you could almost pluck a guy from any country in Europe to play that kind of a propaganda role. And of course, we can shrug and say, well, no bother, you know, it, it won't. We, we have ample defenses against that. Well, really, that's my question, especially after the events of the last few years, when, you know, on a few occasions, it's been demonstrated that the mixture of this hybridity works, and it does yield certain uh, results. And I think it is a worrying thing that there is also a string of organizations, especially in this part of Europe, Central Eastern Europe, Kasper, let me ask you about uh, the spate of expulsions of Russian diplomats in Czech Republic. What's going on there and how does that link to this whole question in Ukraine? It does, because I think there is a there is a known element and the less no, lesser known element. The well-known element is Czech Republic suddenly says after a few years of an investigation that an ammunition dump in Rvetice in Eastern Czech Republic was basically bombed by the Russian military intelligence. Uh, the arms from the depot were supposed to go to Bulgaria and through a middleman sold to Ukraine. And that's allegedly why the Russian military intelligence would have a role in that. And this is followed by expulsions of diplomats, Czech Republic, you know, expels diplomats, and then Russia responds, and there's a kind of like, you know, a table tennis match. Some countries from of the EU join in, uh, in solidarity, some even pre, pre, you know, the expulsions from some countries actually predate the Czech, Czech affair, like by, by, a, by a couple of days. Now, this is the known element of the story. The lesser known element is the fact that there were Czech organizations in Czech Republic around the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine, which were allegedly far left, you know, post-socialist, post-communist and saying, you know, Czechoslovakia was this great thing and we will never fight against Russia. Russians are our great, you know, Slavic brothers and we're Slavs, Russians are Slavs, you know, we hate NATO. They, this is literally what they were saying. One of the organizations was actually called the Czechoslovak Soldiers for, P for Peace. 
you know, that kind of tells you where they were actually seeing themselves. <laughs> and suddenly, members of this organization are being round up by the Czech police at the time of the expulsions on the basically charges of sending people to Donetsk to fight for an illegal entity and to essentially, as the Czech Republic interprets this, to basically stage terrorist attacks against a recognized state, meaning Ukraine. Now, this is not covered by the Western media. This is very much below the radar. And what's interesting here, Lucinda, is that this organization was with a pretty ludicrous name, I, I, I'll grant you that. It did send people to Donetsk to train and to come back. So they would train other fighters, fighters inverted commas in Czech Republic, so that they would be involved in political violence against mainstream and establishment figures. Why? Well, the organization of the Czechoslovak Soldiers for Peace was saying that the establishment and the mainstream has sold out since the refugee crisis because the organization came, you know, it emerged in 2015. And even if it spoke the language of pro-Russianness and post-communism, it was anti-Muslim, anti-migrant, homophobic and nativist at the same time. So you essentially have something that pretends to be on the left, but in terms of its content and like, you know, what it's saying, it's actually on the far right. And it sends people to train to come back to stage political violence. And for years, you know, I've been looking at this organization for years. I was really dumbstruck by the fact that the Czechs are kind of taking it easy because these guys were coming back. And I was like, why? You know, why would you? It seems to me that they were waiting for the right moment. This is the moment to strike at the pro-Russian, you know, structures in the country. We're going after them anyway, after the diplomats, after the, you know, the secret service agents. So we're just gonna, you know, put in jail a few guys whom they probably don't care too much about. That's probably the thing. But organizations like that, Lucinda, exist in Slovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Serbia, all places like that. They wouldn't be far right. They wouldn't certainly on the local map, they wouldn't be categorized as far right. But if we were to take their, their views, as I just mentioned to you, and put them on a Western map, yeah, they would be on the pretty very hardcore conservative right. And they would find many things in common with the individuals who trekked as far rightists to join the war in Ukraine. So that's, I think, you know, where it really gets tricky. This is where the danger is. You know, the Czech extremist milieu has a track record of joining forces with their German counterparts in training, selling guns, ammunition, things like that. If these guys were to link up with such paramilitaries who are allegedly far left, but hey, it's only half a step away, it seems. And then this is happening with the blessing of someone, you know, in a certain country starting with letter R. Uh, well, things might get really tricky for Europe. This is very much, you know, kind of underneath the radar, but it's very much present in the region. And I think this is what we should, you know, look left to look right, if I could put it this way. I think that's a really good uh, way to um, bring this discussion to a close. Uh, there's a huge amount of work to be done, I think, to really understand this phenomenon and for policymakers and lawmakers in Europe and in the West generally, actually mobilize a little bit and be less complacent, I suppose, uh, about these organizations and about this phenomenon. Uh, and I know that um, you've already outlined some of your thoughts about how that should be done. And there's more in your report available on the Counter Extremes and Project website. So, Casper, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your insights your expertise with us today. Thank you for having me. I think it's been a fascinating discussion. I'm sure everybody listening has learned something. I know I have. So thank you. And uh, I look forward to discussing this and more with you in the future.
Thank, thank you. you, Lucinda. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for that. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about fighting terror and the counter extremism project on Twitter using our handle at fight extremism and on the homepage of our website.